0: is all-time high in bucks because we manage for higher buck doe ratios than we ever
1: have. Because on our general season deer units, a large percentage of that harvest is typically yearling bucks, like yearling and two-year-old bucks.
2: But I think the most important thing, and that's just, I think we use that in a lot of aspects of life, is just identifying those trends and, and then taking someone like yourselves, knowing what to do with those trends and how to make changes appropriate For those trends and i'm sure that's exactly what you guys do
0: all signs right now and we have to look at the data and the body fat but all signs point to statewide that we are set up to grow here
2: all right everyone welcome back to the podcast i'm your host Taryn hunt gonna start off by of course thanking our sponsor vortex optics they make everything that we do here at e-hunter possible very grateful for them Um, if you haven't checked out their stuff go and do so visit their website at vortexoptics.com today is part two of the podcast that i did with kobe jones and mike wardle of the utah dwr today our focus is the mule deer numbers in utah there's been a lot of questions on whether those numbers are truly going up and as i mentioned in our previous podcast there was rumors going around that. The numbers in Utah were at an all-time high, and so I asked them that question. Is that true? Are they really at an all-time high, and especially in Mike's territory, are they truly as high as everybody's saying? So we talked about the numbers, what the management plan is for Mule Deer in Utah, um, among other things. So sit back and enjoy this podcast. If you like it, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts those go a long way in helping us get um, the podcast found by other users so go on give us a rating give us a five-star rating and leave us a review we would greatly appreciate it and without further ado here's the interview and part two with mike and kobe let's go ahead and shift gears a little bit now um... i'd really like to talk about the number of mule deer in Utah, and, we, and Mike, you were able to to talk a little bit to that. But the reason I want to bring it up is we had posted an article, um, I believe it was back in October, that talked about the mule deer numbers at an all time high, and it took a lot of us by surprise. We shared it on social media, and I think a lot of the hunters around <laughs> Utah and that come into Utah to hunt uh, didn't feel that that was uh, as accurate as it as it was published in the article. And so I wanted to get just go to the the horse's mouth with you two um, and talk about that. And are the number of mule deer actually at an all time high in Utah? I guess that'll be my first question. Nobody oh, loves that article, by the way.
0: Yeah, I think I think some of that I think some of that was taken. I think I think what was wanted to be taken from that article was taken from that article and published. If if you look back over the the last three years, and I mean our model population from 16, 17, and 18, we are at a recent high. And when I say, you know, there's two things that I said in there. And one of is is all time high in bucks because we managed for higher buck doe ratios than we ever had. Mm -hmm. So there was a time in history where we had more deer. We had a lot more deer. But we managed for a post-season classification. During the glory days of Mule Deer in Utah, we would come in at eight bucks per hundred does post-season statewide. And postseason statewide for the last several years, across the state, we've been coming in at 20, you know, so a lot of bucks on the landscape. But uh, also, when you model a population, you look back a year. And so, in the article, I said, you know, these last, I can't remember the exact word I used, but it was, it was these last, you know, these last couple of years, we, we really had a lot of deer, and we knew that 2019, the winter of 2019, we came in off- a very very harsh drought in 2018. We saw body body condition scores, we saw total ingest of body fat of meal. they really drop. We knew that it was going to be a rough winter and a rough year. I don't know if we anticipated how rough it was actually going to be. Um, but we had a lot of overwinter mortality even even throughout the summer we lost a lot of deer in 2019 on on a majority of units across the state. Um and, and when we do that, when we model these things, when we look at these things, when I give a number, it's always looking back at that last year, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's one of the things that I think as biologists, we don't do a great job at explaining. So looking back, we've had three pretty good highs, 2016, 17, and 18 were pretty good years for mule deer. 2019, a lot of populations really fell off. Um, we knew it, I don't know if we knew until we really dug into the data in December and finalized that survival year because that's when we finalized it. It, it was pretty catastrophic in some areas. Um,
2: did you see that in your turn? Really... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, I think it really manifested itself, especially on our general season units, because on our general season deer units a large percentage of that harvest is typically yearling bucks, like yearling and two-year-old bucks. And and when you're losing
0: the fawn, the the fawn crop, crop. Yeah. yeah, when you're losing
1: that fawn crop the year before, those yearling bucks are missing. And so a large percentage of what it typically harvested was not there this year. And I think that's why a lot of people really, really noticed the difference um, because they just weren't seeing the same number of deer on the landscape because we were really missing that younger cohort
0: and i don't want it to sound all doom and gloom the truth is we're still in a better place than we were in 2009 right yeah we we have been in worse shape with mule deer but also we're not out of the woods yet um you know it'll be interesting this year so far has been good we've gotten snow up high but overall we've got a lot of bared off south slopes deer have places to winter um when we went out and caught deer this year, body fat was way up. And, and Taryn, I don't know how much like you've got into deer are a K regulated species, so they're density dependent. You know, if, if you watch deer, it comes down to, to how they, how they eat what's available on the landscape. But if you watch deer eat, they don't just mole plant down, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You watch deer eat and they're very selective. They're selective about what parts of the plant they eat and how they eat. And the reason why they're so selective is because they need the highest nutrition parts of a plant to put on that weight, to put on that fat. And if they don't get it, they don't put on the fat they need to overwinter well overwinter well or to throw a healthy fawn and and it starts to affect the population. Well, as populations in deer grow and approach carrying capacities, there's more competition for that high nutrition, higher energy feed. And that's what makes them, uh, they call it K regulated, right? There are regulated species and K regulated species. K regulated species are affected by density. The more of them, there are on the landscape. At some point, they start to compete with each other for the feed they need to survive and, and produce healthy offspring. And so as you watch deer, Um, approach a carrying capacity, their fat levels really drop. Well, we had a really an artificial lowering of the carrying capacity in the summer of 2018. So when we saw deer come in, they were not nearly as fat as they needed to be. And then we had a severe winter, where in some portions of Utah, we had well over 200% snowpack. It it just was like the one-two punch that it set
2: us back man well and that's going into this year of 2019 into the you know i going into this winter that we're currently in we i've lot at least a lot of us hunters felt like the utah had received like you said the winter pack the moisture the the grass growth you know the the feed growth and, and again we're not biologists so we don't, we're not really sure what you know what feed is the feed that they're actually looking for is but we kind of felt like um that would really help improve those numbers and, and so will we not see that improved numbers until next year because of what happened in 2019 with that or, or do, you, do you project the numbers I guess, I guess my question is do you project the numbers going up as we go into 2020 and 2021 or do you feel like we'll see a slip in those numbers?
0: Uh, all, all signs right now and we have to look at the data and the body fat but all signs point to statewide that we are set up to grow deer. Okay. We're set up to grow deer, we're set up to start to recover. One of the things that we did see when this happened, when we saw deer drop off, is that when we grew a lot of deer, we also grew a lot of predators. Um, you know, and, and that predator, prey herd, predators just follow deer up. Mm-hmm. And, and we saw, when deer fell off, we saw predator take on the deer that were left really, really become, you know, just, it was just in your face. Right, Mike? I mean, is there any other way to put it? Like, all, all of a sudden, we have fewer animals left on the landscape, but the same number of predators, and they were just hammering our deer. So, we're trying to address that to allow deer to rebound more quickly. Um, that's one of the challenges that we'll face moving forward, though, is getting that back to the right level for the number of deer that we have in the landscape now. Gotcha. We're working on it, though. And I, and I, and I would say, Taryn, we are set up to grow. I, I hate saying we're going to grow. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of that depends on what happens next winter, what happens next summer. Uh, but we saw fat in the season; these animals, as density was released, as we had a good water year this year, we saw fat go way, way up, mm-hmm. way, way up.
2: So, so all in all, you mentioned two thousand nine, and and I think uh, we had talked about two thousand eleven, um, kind of being. That was kind of like a low time. So since that time till now, you've seen a great improvement. I believe the number in that article was like 100,000 more mule deer. Is that about right for what we've grown since 2011?
0: So we grew that between now and then about 2016, 17, somewhere. We started to fall off 17, 18, and we ended up where we are today. Um, and I'm not sure what the model population estimate is going to look like this year, but it it definitely, we definitely are falling off. You know, last year, the model population estimate was 372. And I know that looking back on 2019, it's going to, we fell off a lot.
2: Gotcha.
1: Uh, I think it's important to know, like, those, those estimates are model populations, like Kobe said, they're an estimate. So, you know, if the population is increasing, um, the po- you know, the estimate is likely, it's likely under guessing what, what the size is. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the population is declining, the model could potentially be overestimating. I mean. The model takes the middle ground.
0: It's smooth. Gotcha. So, it, it, you know, when, you're, when your rate of growth, it'll tell you, no, there's no way that you grew that fast. And then when you fall off, it may, it may kind of say, no, there's no way that you fell off that fast. So what, what models do is the exact number, and this is, we use the same model as Colorado. It's a great model. It was developed by Gary White. Um, they're, it's, it's perfect for what we do. Uh, It uses real world data, incorporates real world data into giving us a population estimate. But the thing that models or this model, models are really good at is giving us Mm trends. You know, what is the trend look like? Is it going up? Is it going down? The thing models that are really bad at is you can't always hang your hat on that's the exact number of deer across the state. You know, you can look back and say, yeah, we dipped there, we grew there. That's but but it's as far as an exact number, if that's what you want out of a model, you're gonna be disappointed your whole life.
2: Gotcha, well, I think the most important thing, and that's just I think we use that in a lot of aspects of life, is just identifying those trends and and then taking someone like yourselves, knowing what to do with those trends and how to make changes appropriate for those trends, and I'm sure that's exactly what you guys do, yeah. Well, it
0: is, and, I, and I'll tell you. I think we we are learning more about deer every day. We we're managing more actively and more proactively every day with new data and better technology. And the stuff that we found on the switch when populations fell off, and and cougars probably went from their their term that biologists use is compensatory take, which is just take death that's going to happen anyways, to additive take, or which is additional mortality above that of what natural mortality would be. And and we saw mountain lions on some units switch from compensatory to additive really, really quickly. And it was interesting to see that switch. Um and I think there are a lot of old biologists that would have said, No, that's that's that doesn't happen. And when you see it and have data to show it, it's it's a different game.
1: Yeah. And, and Terrence, just for a little background information for listeners, like the way we get a lot of that information is through our collaring efforts. So because a biologist over the beaver, I just put out 35 collars this year. And if one of those collared deer dies, I typically get an email within a day or two of that deer dying with a GPS location of where the carcass is. And I can go in, find the carcass, and determine, you know, this deer was either killed by a lion or hit by a car or killed by coyotes. Um, it died of poor nutrition, you know, whatever the cause is. Um, that cause specific mortality helps us understand as biologists. What is happening to the deer on the unit, and that's where when Kobe says, you know, we saw uh, more more cougar kills, and we saw that cougar kill or that cougar predation go from compensatory mortality to additive mortality. That that's a lot of how we're figuring
2: that stuff out. Gotcha, and that's done in every unit, correct? The the collaring. Not not every unit.
0: No, we have we 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 can't do it at every unit to get a level to where it would be statistically valid. And so we have to pick representative units and let those units be, help us model what could be going on in the units around it. And it's good. It's, you know, we, we keep adding units because we also have, we have our survival study and then we also have the migration initiative. So we have a lot of units with collared deer on, on the air. Um, But we, we keep our core, our core survival units.
1: So like for my, for my units, for the beaver and the Pavant, uh, the Monroe is, is the unit that I use for survival estimates. Oh, okay. The Monroe's had collars for, what, 10 years probably?
0: Yeah. The Monroe's
1: been one of the most studied mountains in the state um, okay. for deer. And so I, I look at the survival trend on the Monroe, um, but now this is the first time we've had collars on the beaver. Now I can also, you know, look at the survival specifically on the beaver um, and use that
2: information too. Gotcha. Okay, I've got one more question. You know, I'll get you guys out of here on this one, and it pertains to the the number of mule deer in Utah. And you kind of touched on it with um, the type of feed that the deer eat, but and this is specific to your territory, Mike. But really, to the state, um, does the state have the habitat that Will it allow for an increase in mule deer, um, or a significant increase in mule deer? Do you feel like there is that habitat there to allow for that?
1: Depends on the area.
2: I mean, in my, in my district, we've done a lot of work on winter habitat in my
1: district. On the pavant and the beaver especially, there's been a lot of really good work done to increase um, the carrying capacity of the winter range. Um, we, we could do a lot more work on the summer range, and, and there's always still work on the winter range we could do. But but I think that there's a lot of work we could do up high in the higher elevations. Um, but having said that, I do think there's room to grow, especially now as deer have declined. And um, naturally, we should start to see deer populations come back because of that depend- density dependence that Kobe talked about. As, as deer populations have become less dense, meaning there's less of them there, mm-hmm. um, there should be more nutrition available, right? And so they should be fatter, they should, the dough should be throwing healthier fawns, which it in, leads to increased fawn survival, which ultimately gives you more deer on the
0: mountain. Well, I think Mike nailed this one, Taren, though, man, because if we don't have it in Utah, we're going to build it. You yes. know, we, We've learned, we've focused a lot on winter range, and winter range is really important, but what we've learned through our collaring efforts is that even on winter range limited units, the summer range and the quality of the summer range may be more important. And so we're right now we're in the process of trying to switch our focus as to where we emphasize projects for mule deer and how we do habitat. You know, Utah has a hundred thousand acres of habitat restoration a year. No other state in the West can even come close to that. Um, we, um, and, and the way we do it, the division of wildlife leads the charge. We spearheaded this with all of our federal partners and we're, we're very lucky to have a very active BLM forest. Uh, state agencies that are so excited to do this but as we spearheaded this and help direct restoration efforts we got a pretty big ball rolling um the forest has come on lately really strong saying that they really want to focus on some of these high elevation areas and we're ready to go man we're ready to jump in you don't we don't have the habitat let's build it let's get it let's make it deer are really important to us we here's the secret man like Although Mike is a crappy hunter. He's still, no, I'm just <laughs> We're biologists and we're kind of geeky and nerdy, but most of us are hunters first. Right. When, when we hear people had a bad hunter, you know, I, I try to hunt different units. I try to understand what our hunting public is going through because it really, really matters to me. I, I love to hunt. I've loved. It. I grew up in Castle Dale, Utah, man.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, oh, yeah. I kept saying go to school, and I kept saying, but I just want to be outside. I just want to hunt.
1: <laughs> you admit that way more than you should. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes make
0: the well look like a metropolis. So <laughs> you know, we, we grew up surrounded by these systems and loving mule deer and and wanting more mule deer where we can have more mule deer. So we want the same thing. Some of this is out of our control, Frank. When we have severe drought, when we have severe winters, it's their closing buck hunts won't fix it. Their stuff like that won't fix it. What will fix it is having the right number of deer on the landscape, having habitat available, doing things to help them rebound more quickly. And we're committed, we're all in.
2: Well, and I, I as myself as a hunter, and I'm sure most of my l- listeners, our listeners um they're all hunters and so that's what we want to actually hear honestly from you guys is if we don't have it let's build it and and i think that's that speaks volumes to us we always want more buck to doe ratio as hunters we want more deer we want more elk um but uh, I know there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff to that. It's not as easy as just putting a whole bunch out there. And, you know, and I can't vouch for uh, Mike as a hunter. I can vouch for him as a fisherman, though. Man, that guy can catch some big old fish. So, <laughs> <laughs> I have been fishing with him a couple of times. So, <laughs> so uh, cool. Karen, I'd, I'd
1: add a plug at the end. Um, if you have listeners that want to get involved in stuff that are passionate about this. Like, when we do these deer captures, I think there's nothing better than somebody who's been critical of the division or, or maybe they just want to know more, like, to come out and, and experience it. Like, come, come take measurements on a deer. Come see what we do. Come see the ultrasounds. Come see the body condition scores. Come out and, and get involved. Like, I'm more than willing to have people spend days riding around in my pickup truck with me talking about this stuff. And I think all of, all of us are. And we don't. I sometimes just wish that we would have more public involvement, one on one, with us, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so that we can talk about this kind of stuff. So there's my shameless plug. Get
2: involved. Well, and and that's that's a goal of this podcast, honestly, is is to get people involved and know the truth behind things. Um, You you read so much stuff on Facebook groups and Instagram, and you know you you see all this stuff, but. And, and this is kind of my plug to my listeners as well is get out with the professionals who know what they're doing and, and spend time with them. Um, I've already asked Mike prior to this call, if I would be, if he'd allow me to come spend some time with him as he's capturing these animals. And, and, you know, as a hunter for us, it's just being around that is, is a great thing. You can never know too much. Will I ever be a wildlife biologist? Absolutely not. I, uh, that's just not in the cards for me but I can learn a little bit by spending some time with you so I appreciate that plug I really do Mike I think that's something and I would encourage all of our listeners to to reach out to wherever you're at whatever state you're in reach out to your local um, fishing game parks and wildlife whatever and, and get out with them spend some time with them I promise you you will learn a lot and, and I'm learning so much from these podcasts things that uh, I never thought I would know so I I know you guys are busy. I know you need to get going and probably need to get home to your family. So I I want to express my appreciation from um, myself and from E Hunter and from our listeners uh, for your guys's time with me. I hope this is not the last pod- last podcast that we share together. Um, I'm sure I'll be reaching out to to both of you in the near future for other questions, and I hope that's okay. Yeah, that's
0: great. You, yeah. Call us anytime, man. You got my number now. Got yeah, Mike's number, so yeah, absolutely.
2: Cool. Will do. Well, thank you guys. I'll let you go. Um, hope you guys have a great evening and thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Terrence. See you. See you guys. Thanks everybody for listening and thanks to Mike and Covey again for your time with me and recording this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podbean or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks everybody for your support.